Hi, this is Karen Harvey, and you're listening to Fashion Tech Forum in the studio. I've always been very clear that technology is a tool to understand your consumer better mm-hmm. or to um, create great product. It will never fix bad products. It will never fix if you've alienated your customer. As a technologist now, being really clear about where we can play a role and where we can't is really important. And I think on the technology side, I can certainly say from my experience at Salesforce and Microsoft, there's a deep understanding that retailers are, you know, it's not just an industry, it's a strategy of understanding your customer. Today, I am delighted to share my conversation with Shelley Branson, Corporate Vice President, Global Retail and Consumer Industries for Microsoft. Shelley and I recently reconnected when she spoke at the NRF in January this year, and although it had been more than 20 years since we'd seen each other, it was genuinely like rediscovering a long-lost friend. After the first few minutes of the conversation, I knew that this chat would be extremely valuable and inspiring for our audience, as the way that Shelley made the transition from leading large consumer marketing teams in fashion and retail to leading even larger global teams for one of the most powerful technology companies in the world is a brilliant example of how one impactful leader can bring these two sectors together so that true transformation can take place. Now sitting squarely at the center of this hybrid world of retail and technology, Shelley runs the global retail vertical for Microsoft. Here, she brings her experience full circle. Her extraordinary and very personal understanding of the retail sector alongside the most cutting edge digital technologies provides Microsoft's brand partners with strategic solutions that enable them to embrace the imperative of transforming their brands so that consumers can be authentically engaged, inspired, and served by the brands they love. Fascinated by brands at an early age, Shelley was raised in a family of brand builders. She remembers vividly being drawn to consumer behavior and mindsets as her father would bring her with him to check up on his coffee business at the grocery stores that sold his brand. Even then, Shelley was intrigued by the carts of shoppers as she would draw connections between their purchases and their preferences and lifestyles. While neither Shelley or her father would have ever imagined that she would apply this curiosity to a career that would ultimately lead to her driving transformation for brands and companies, and even in the early days like Williams-Sonoma and Gap Inc., Shelley was just one of those people who could see the future and was able to gain the trust of these company leaders in the 90s as she brought early CRM strategies and technology to the center of marketing. In fact, in 1997, during her first role at Williams-Sonoma working on their catalog business, Shelley was able to convince the C-suite leaders to launch their first Mother's Day website. Well, a lot has happened between then and now. And after 16 years in retail, Shelley transitioned to the technology sector. And today, as one of the most important female leaders in technology, Shelley brings a bold, wholehearted, and consistently innovative approach to all aspects of her life. In this conversation, we cover everything from the first innovations 
in aggregating customer data and insights toward achieving game-changing business goals to what it's like being a woman and a leader in the world of technology. We also explore the importance of true partnerships built on the foundation of real relationships that engender trust, which Shelley believes is key to building the products and brands of the future between these two seemingly disparate sectors. Shelley is a stellar example of someone who creates no separation between her personal and professional values as inherent to her special brand of leadership is a unique kind of empathy where every day she shows up as a passionate advocate for customers while working tirelessly to ensure that they have the tools to reimagine their businesses. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Well, first of all, Shelley, I'm so excited. I've been really looking forward to this. And for those of you listening, Shelley and I met while she was inside the Gap organization during a really interesting period of time, I would say pre the sort of tech boom as it relates to retail and fashion. And she was recognized as somebody super fast-tracked and brilliant on the sort of consumer marketing side of the business. I think I probably tried to recruit you or something for some role, but uh, it was very memorable for me. And then when you were speaking at NRF in the middle of, I guess it was still the pandemic, right? Of course. I was like, oh, I know this woman. I would love to chat with her and learn all about what Microsoft is doing. So many months later, here we are. And yeah, it's really great to be with you. Thanks so much for making it work today. Oh, Karen, it's really my privilege. And um, I think you're being incredibly modest as usual about yourself. But I have a slightly different take on the story. I remember sort of me working my way up at The Gap, and I was interested in an area that no one was interested in at the time, which was customer data. And you sort of spotted me and yeah. helped me think about my career. So oh, that's um, amazing. Thank you. It's true. Like you never know where things are going to lead. And I think we're both, you know, kind of collectors of people. And Indeed. Um, so it was so fun to, to be reconnected with you in a completely different context. So let's step back in time. Can you, I don't think I remember or know where you're from, where you grew up, like what was the context of your early life? So I am um, actually sitting in Mill Valley, California right now, so Marin County. Um, and, I, and I'm not very far from where I grew up, which is San uh. Francisco. I have sort of been in the consumer space my whole life, you know, kind of retail and brand flows in my blood. My family is um, fifth generation San Franciscan. We came for the gold rush from Germany. Uh, we're not <laughs> successful. This is why we asked the question. We didn't find the gold, but we actually were on the boats with uh, the Levi Strauss that. family that, um, you know, made the the jeans for the miners. And, and my family started a coffee company. And so... I, uh, on weekends as a little girl, would go to the supermarket with my dad. And I always say, like, I knew what an end cap was before I could do a somersault because we used to rearrange coffee cans and I worked in sample kitchens. And so 
I mean, this is why we ask these questions. That's incredible. I've always loved brands and I'm definitely part of my family history. And do you have siblings? You know, what's your family dynamic? I have two sisters. I'm the middle, which, uh, you know, in I'm a different, too. you are. Bro- oh, brothers, yes. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Oh, interesting. I'm, you know, very close to my family. Both my sisters are in the San Francisco Bay Area. All of us have children. The, the children are close. And my parents are still in the house oh, that's that amazing. they brought me home from the hospital and they're still around. And um, I think my parents would be the first to say that, if they had put their chips down on which of their three girls was going to have sort of a big corporate career, it was not going to be me. If I hadn't gone into sort of the intersection of retail and technology, I probably would have gone into psychology. In supermarkets, I still to this day like to look at what people have in their basket and what it says about them. Your inner anthropologist. That's the way to say it. So I think that was always at the core of what interested me in me. And so that's part of... um, what propelled me in my own career choices. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, though, and I would have been a terrible lawyer. (laughs) So where'd you go to school? So I went to Duke, and I got a BA in political science and Spanish. I lived abroad and speak Spanish fluently. Wonderful. And then I actually worked in nonprofit initially after college. And then, I don't know, I somehow really gravitated to sort of the order of business and the order of, you know, data and what the stories that data could tell. So then I went back to graduate school and got my MBA at Berkeley. That's amazing. And then how did you find your way into Gap? Because of course, in those days, not that that's so long ago, but at that time, very few retailers were paying attention to data. And I think the idea of a loyalty program was a punch card of sorts or something along those lines or something that happened at the cash wrap, I guess. But I really don't recall at that time Gap placing a huge emphasis on data. I know there was a strategy side always to the business, but can you talk about how you found your way there apart from it being in San Francisco, your home turf? When I was finishing up Berkeley, uh, and I have to give a plug, so my last name's Branston. The only other person that was really interested in retail at, at Berkeley with me was Mark Breitbart, who's now president of Gap. I love and, that. And we shared a locker <laughs> at Berkeley, and we joked because everybody would go out, you know, it was for your suit to go have your interviews with the investment banks and the the consultants. And we joked because neither of us ever knew the combination because we were the only people who never, you know, had interviews. But Somehow we both figured it out. Mark went straight to the gap. I actually went to William Sonoma first. They were, to your point, the kind of Harvard of database at the time. They were really using their catalog to uh, figure out where to open stores and how to understand their customers better. So I went there. It was the first e-commerce, the beginning of the first e-commerce boom. So I helped them launch their first Mother's Day website. Wow. I know. And I remember Howard Lester looking at me and saying, this thing is a flash in the pan. People are not going to buy things from their computer. I love that. (laughs) Amazing. You're like, I don't think so. I'm like, I don't 
don't know either, but it seems like if you could buy things from home versus having to get in the car, you know, that might be a good idea. Let's try it. So I did that for a little while. And then a friend of mine, who I think you also know um, from Gap, called me and said that Banana Republic, which was relaunching, wanted to start mailing their catalog again. So they hired me to come build the first company database. And, um, (laughs) you know, like many things, I look back and can't believe what they let me do. That's what's so great in a way about these kind of pioneering vertical retail companies that did know how to recognize somebody really smart and talented, really game, and just kind of let you do it. I mean, that's a big gift, actually. It really was. And I actually saw a friend for dinner last night who also was at The Gap during those days. And we were talking about how, you know, we just got unbelievable access to do things. You were at Gap for how long? I was there for 16 years. So I started in in Banana Republic, helped them, you know, launch the, relaunch the catalog, build the database, set up a loyalty program, set up a credit card program to just, you know, Mickey in the day was very focused on if you wanted to know consumer sentiment, you go stand on a street corner in Tokyo or or Manhattan. Right? Yes. And I... Don't disagree with that. But I also thought, well, if you also knew how they act and you could pull those things together, you could actually have a more complete profile. And so I was able to sort of bridge between those two things and talk to the merchants. Which is hard with him. I mean, he (laughs) notoriously does not love the data. So I I think that's, you know, admirable. Yeah. Well, I was kind of a game, you know, and it was fun for me. And so I was able to do that for Banana Republic. And then they asked me to then do that for Old Navy and Gap as well. So then it was actually, you know, the first kind of cross-channel, cross-brand customer database. So I sort of worked my way up, built the competency, and I think, you know, built most importantly the team around CRM, loyalty, catalog, and e-commerce, and learned entirely the business along the way. And when did you start feeling the new energy, let's say, um, of Silicon Valley? Like, how was that trickling down to you? Do you remember a moment where you sort of said something's happening here or was it more gradual? I think it was gradual. I think, you know, we did have an advantage being in San Francisco and the Fisher family was so active. So all of a sudden we had all these incredibly smart, incredibly young entrepreneurs calling on us wanting to help us think through some of, you know, in the early days, just to set up a website or figure out what checkout would look like. And oh, that must have been so interesting, actually. It was really interesting. And I found myself not necessarily always feeling like they had the perfect answer, but I really loved the questions they were asking about what the future of shopping could look like. Right. But I think to answer your question, it was more gradual than sudden. Then there was there was some article that was written about how data scientists were like the new rock stars. Mm-hmm. I had just started to hire a team of data scientists and I got a sort of an office opened up in Bangalore, India. So I was sort of like, I was watching 
And I was trying to frankly imitate to learn and, and help the company move forward in what I believe was going to be really strategically important for the industry. That's so fascinating. And so 16 years, and then you went to the product side, meaning technology product side. How did that come about? And was it a recruiting call? Was it kind of through networking or were you, did you actively sort of pursue learning that side of the business from the inside? What happened was, um, so I ran all of the email programs, the outbound email at Gap for all the brands. And I put in, um, it was actually the first cloud application that the Gap ever embraced. And, you know, at the time in retail, the thought of putting your customer data in the cloud. I mean, I'll never forget that board meeting. People looked at me like, really, you're going to take our customer data and put it with somebody else in the cloud? Right, right. Unfathomable. But at the time, it took us like six weeks to do a single email campaign. And we were like printing out the emails. We were putting them up like way, the way you put samples <laughs> right, up and looking right. at them. And someone said it was like putting like a Rembrandt painting through the, eth- you know, I and I just was like, it. I knew that like sending men's emails to women or kids, right. you know, and so the only way we were going to go faster was leveraging some of this technology. So we put in this company called Exact Target that was then bought by Salesforce Gap became Salesforce's largest retail customer. I went through the whole migration with with Salesforce as the Gap executive. And then Salesforce called me. I mean, that's a lot, actually, just to stop there and say that is a lot. I mean, we're just going through Salesforce integration with our small company. I mean, that's no small feat. There were a lot of things that I did right. And there were a lot of things that I did wrong. Of course, yeah. I think Salesforce recognized in me that if they brought somebody into the technology space who could speak the language of retailers, even your own implementation, like the good and the things that were hard, that I could probably help, you know, frankly, recruit more retailers to their product. Exactly. The lessons that I learned in going through that migration, you know, were some of the best lessons I've ever learned. That's really interesting, Shelley. And while you were there, were there a lot of women in the business at the time? At Salesforce or at The Gap? At Salesforce. I mean, it was a big switch, obviously, going from retail, where even though I still think we have a lot of room to go at the, yes. you know, the, but the middle, the middle ranks of retail is very female. It absolutely is. And then, you know, moving into the technology space, the answer to your question is, is flat out no. It was very strange to me, frankly, to be the only woman in most meetings um, at Salesforce. I, I do want to, and this is nothing against Salesforce, but just a an ongoing conversation and dialogue that I have, which is when you start to think about the technology sector, and especially at that time, and the dearth of, of women around those tables, what was that like for you? And I don't mean just as a woman, but also a woman coming from retail, because it's been my experience over the last eight, nine years as we have been building Fashion Tech Forum's platform to bring these two sectors together that 
many people inside the technology sector did not think that people who did fashion or retail were necessarily incredibly deep or bright, or I just found those belief systems, you know, really fascinating to study. And then on the other side, it sort of seemed like from the fashion and retail side of things that no one ever thought that technology could take over in some way, shape or form because they didn't have that je ne sais quoi understanding about the product. So can you say a little bit about that dynamic? Does that make any sense when I say all this? It makes complete sense. You're actually articulating so incredibly well, almost like the slider. I often say like the retail ambassador inside of either Salesforce or Microsoft. And equally, I think it's it's so important for the retailers and the, and the brands to understand how technology companies think and, and innovate. There is a lack of understanding. And do you feel like you're, you must by now be able to bridge those gaps? Because I also see more broadly today, I mean, here you are, you've made, you made the move to Microsoft a few years ago, and you're basically running the worldwide, the vertical for retail. Is that the right way to describe what you're doing? That is the right way to describe it. And I do see it changing. I do. I think there is a much deeper, obviously, understanding within the retail world of how important technology is. I mean, I'll, I'll stay away from all the truisms that every company is a technology company, but yes, but you know, I've always been very clear that technology is a tool to understand your consumer better Mm -hmm. or to um, create great product. It will never fix bad products. It will never fix, you know, if if you alienated your customer. So I think as a technologist now, being really clear about where we can play a role and where we can't is really important. And I think on the technology side, I can certainly say from my experience at Salesforce and Microsoft is there's a deep understanding that retailers are, you know, it's not just an industry, it's a strategy of understanding your customer. So important. It's so important. Like I go, I sit in meetings with Microsoft and they're talking about how we're going to package, you know, a technology solution. And I'll Uh look at it and say, we can't bring that to a retailer. These are people that price and package for a living. This isn't good enough. But it's funny, like my experience is that it is just in the last couple of years and that I really see the shift. You know, we used to say all the time, you know, when we bring CEOs to companies, there are there are moments in time, I've been doing this stuff long enough, that certain things are crucially important. The merchant leader, the full stack Um, marketing leader that understands how to get closer to the consumer, which is still, I would say, inside our industry, just now being truly appreciated, right? I wrote a sort of a think tank article a hundred years ago for WWD, which said the marketer was the new CEO for fashion and retail and got a lot of pushback and got a lot of support. It depended on who was talking about it. But I do think that, and one of the reasons I was so excited to have this conversation with you today is, you know, here we're 18 months-ish, a year anyway, into a pandemic, and never before 
has anyone inside fashion or retail recognized the necessity of having a real relationship with their consumers and the power that technology gives them to do that. We've been sort of ranting about this for quite some time, but those that started to make those strides before COVID hit were really, I think, just so happy that they had invested and taken the initiative so they could get to curbside service somehow. That stuff doesn't happen by magic. There has to be a lot of product and development and connection to all the other aspects operationally in the company to get that done. You know, when you speak to retailers today, um, heads of these brands around the world, do you believe that there is now a wide understanding of the importance of not just the data, but of implementing product, Microsoft product or other technology products that really make that relationship more effective? So the question is, am I seeing a deeper awareness amongst the retailers around the importance of data and, and, and using data? And integrating technology like at the center of their business to ease the consumer relationship and all those important things? I mean, the answer is yes. And I think, you know, it's interesting, Karen, obviously pre-COVID, I used to, one of the things that I got better at in, in my technology career was walking into different retail meetings and I could almost feel it in the room, whether to your point about the article you wrote about the CMO, whether this was going to be a meeting where they're really there because they want to change, or if they're there because their CEO said technology is important and you should meet with Salesforce or Microsoft. Right. And the punchline to all that is, I actually believe it's a cultural shift. The the more I'm in technology, the more I'd say it's a, this is a cultural transformation, not a technology Mm -hmm. transformation of, of believing that these things will get you closer to your consumer. I think you said the biggest one obviously is e-commerce, right? And it's sort of irrefutable because even if in some old retail part of ourselves, we worry that it's going to cannibalize our store sales, which was sort of always the MO. That was, I forgot about that one. But even if you still believe that, you know, as a consumer yourself, what it affords you. I think the other piece that I'm increasingly seeing brands adapt around is sustainability. And anybody who is around teenagers, has children, just as a human wants to leave the world in a... In a, in a better place. Totally. I mean. And increasingly, you know, sustainability is a, is a tracking issue. And it's a supply chain issue. And so data and technology are just the tools. I do think the importance of e-commerce, the trend there, the importance of a sustainability or the path to net zero, and then just the human desire to understand your customer better and to know that, you know, they're not just on your website, but that they've been somewhere else, they're browsing, they're on their phone and tying those pieces of data together to paint the picture. The curiosity hasn't changed, but the tooling 
is so much better. Yeah, you just said something that you breeze through, but I think it's it's worth kind of underlining the path to net zero. I mean, that's huge. There isn't a brand I work with that doesn't have their goals and commitments listed on their site for how much less water they're going to use, how much less they're going to damage the waters that we swim in and, you know, that are crucial for our drinking. There are commitment after commitment to make sure that these goals and commitments in terms of sustainability are being specified and there's a path to getting there. So I don't know that that many people really think about that path to net zero being a technology not even issue, but that there are there's all this technology that can solve it. Like the thing that comes to my mind is, and Microsoft may have another tool, but blockchain in tracking provenance of product and not just provenance, but also how it's made, how many planes it takes to get from here to there, how many boats, how many people. But that path to net zero and being able to calculate those things is something that is incredibly important. Can you say a little bit about that? So uh, the example I'll use is actually Starbucks, and it's exactly what you just said. So we've been on a multi-year transformation with Starbucks at Microsoft on a project called From From Bean to Cup. Mm. You know, Starbucks grows coffee in 300,000 farms around the world. A lot of them are actually, you know, small, smaller farmers in developing countries, which is great. And, you know, they sort of had a single question, which is, can we track and trace from when the bean is grown to roasted either to one of our cafes or in a bag from bean all the way to cup and then provide traceability ultimately for the consumer to show them our practices. Mm -hmm. And then even for ourselves to understand because they themselves had not had a complete traceability from farm or from bean to cup. We've built it now. It's just as you said, Karen, it's blockchain technology. Mm. So exciting. It's so exciting. I mean, 71% of, you know, Gen Zs are saying they're going to buy from brands that are more sustainable. So that's, that's there. But, you know, one of the side effects of this is, is now some of these farmers who are in small villages are able to get micro loans in their countries because they're now connected to Starbucks. And, you know, you kind of couldn't prove that you were worth, worth the money. So you're giving back in a whole other way. And that's sustainable. That's actually... It is. And then the... the circular. It's circular. And then the path to net zero, then now that you can track it, you can say, okay, well, can we... Do we really need to have this, you know... This step or that this step. This step or, or that. Exactly. I'm glad you, you push on it. I love that brands are starting to use actually the words path to net zero more than sustainability, because to me, it's got the goal and the metric in it versus like a broad statement. It's the evolution of an idea, right? And how we think about it, which is really powerful, actually. Is there a path to net zero? Absolutely. Um, Can you say something about that? 
I mean, I think just as you said, whether it's ESG or frankly, the conversations that I'm having, Mm -hmm. retailers, when they have a goal (laughs) and it's clear and it's shared, they know how to deliver. They go after it. They go after it. And it is, I mean, I, you know, I recently joined um, the board of RELA, which is the Retail Industry Leadership Association. I feel so lucky. I mean, it's, it's mostly just retailers and a few tech providers and stuff, but the path to net zero, it's not a side conversation. It's a main stage conversation. It is a main stage conversation. And I know a couple of the CEOs I work with right now today tell me that when they sit with analysts for their quarterly reports, when it used to be the first question would be, what is your EBITDA or what are your targets for growth? Or some of the very first questions analysts are asking is how are you tracking on your sustainability goals? And when that starts to come up in these kinds of financial conversations, I think we really are on a main stage issue that is going to take some time. I mean, there's also a lot of undoing when it comes to harm around the world and our our industry, meaning retail's fashion side is responsible for a great deal of that. So I wasn't really thinking about this conversation and Microsoft being able to be that partner, but that's really powerful. And sort of segueing that, when you start to think about the cloud and integrating sort of end-to-end from making something to actually selling it to consumers and all of those things that happen along the way, how do you see things changing? I'll back up and then I'll answer the question. One of the things that drew me to Microsoft was the cultural transformation that was happening within the company and the role I thought technology could play. When the company ran very successfully for many years, the goal was around, you know, a PC on every desk and in every home. Yes. And when Satya Nadella came in as the third CEO ever of Microsoft, he spent, and he wrote a book in the middle of this, but he spent a lot of time bringing in this idea of a growth mindset. It was inspired by actually his own curiosity at home with his with his teenagers. Mm. The fundamental thing is, how do you go from being a know-it-all to being a learn-it-all? And I thought, I, love that. <laughs> I know, right? I thought, well, I can't be a know-it-all because I don't know so much, but I love learning. The new kind of mission statement is to empower every person, every organization on the planet to achieve more. And I, you know, yeah, and it's simple. That's and it's how it, it is. It's, and it, yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> and you, and it's it's beautiful in that it doesn't even have the word technology. You know, it, it's not the PC anymore. And so, for me, being a part of a technology company that wants to empower, then you take sort of the retail version of that, empower retailers to achieve more. I thought if I can sort of point that powerful. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. At at this industry that I so, you know, grew up in and so deeply care about, that would be something. This morning in preparation for this, I was watching your podcast, Taking Stock, which was fantastic. And I happened to see you speaking with Maureen Taylor, which must have been a lot of fun. And I know that you've worked with her. She's quite brilliant. But this whole concept of shifting, because it is 
I hate this word, but I'm going to use it anyway. It is a paradigm shift from being a know-it-all to being a learn-it-all, because I do think there are certain industries that draw know-it-alls more than others. And without saying who, what, or why, I think it's interesting because when you're in a position to really understand the why of everything, so data being at the root of that, it's easy to become a know-it-all. I know why she does that, and this is why this happens, and you know, I'm oversimplifying, but to turn that into a methodology for curiosity and growing is really tremendous, actually. Yeah, it is, and I think it helps you. Like when I joined Microsoft, Amazon had just opened the first of their Amazon Go stores. And so every big box retailer that I met with said, okay, Microsoft, can you give us an Amazon Go solution? Interesting. And again, sort of like, of course we could. Like, you know, yeah. the technology itself, like you can put lots of cameras in, you can take the data in, you can build it so people can check in and check out. You can make QR codes for everybody can do their thing, all that stuff. All yep. of that. But if you sort of go, that's sort of the know-it-all answer. But if you go back and you say, okay, well, what are you trying to understand? Are you trying to solve like lines? Are you trying to solve loss prevention? Are you trying to understand how people are moving through your stores? And so, I mean, we've done some of actually some frictionless stores. You'll never know. It's not branded Microsoft. That's just not our MO. We consider ourselves an ingredient. But lots and lots of retailers were just trying to solve for lines at, at the cash wrap or trying to understand um, how they restock better. So I think asking those questions to get to like the core issue versus solving is, you know, technology, it's easy. And I'm in the middle of finishing up our Q4 and our fiscal year. Like I have, I have numbers I have to hit. But I think if you back up to ask the question, you actually build partnerships that last over time. As many of you know, we have resisted the notion of paid sponsorships so that we can use these in-between moments to share people, organizations, and social impact initiatives that we believe are so important and driving change around the world. It is in this spirit that we wanted to share Harlem's Fashion Rose new nonprofit, which we are excited to contribute to and to share with you. Systemic barriers, financial, racial, and social have existed in the fashion industry since its inception. This has caused talented creators to be overlooked, leading to decades of missed opportunity and marginalization. For 14 years, Harlem's Fashion Row, better known as HFR, has created a bridge between Black designers and retailers through collaborations, pipeline programs, and experiential events. In 2020, HFR launched a 501c3 nonprofit, Icon360, to address systemic barriers and COVID challenges Black designers face. Their mission is to provide fashion designers of color with resources for sustainable business growth and legacy development. In 2020, Icon360 received a generous donation of $1 million from the CFDA and Vogue. This donation was a business lifeline for over 25 Black designers. 
Later this year, Icon360 will launch an endowment campaign. HFR invites retailers to join them in changing the course of fashion by creating a new legacy. This important endowment will ensure that black fashion designers will be seen, heard, and supported for generations through your support. Please go to www.hfricon360.com for more details. Thank you. This idea of empowering every person on the planet to do more and this idea of technology, every company being a technology company, meaning it's not about the technology, but it is about empowerment and eventually potentially net zero because also time spent, energy spent, all the things that are spent around old versus new or traditional and non-traditional seem almost frivolous in terms of the conversation when we're thinking about how companies can really move forward and empower their own people to do more actually, as well as their consumers. I mean, I don't think there was a question in that, but what does that make you feel when I describe that? It makes me lean in because I agree with you. And I think there is a, a sort of, and I, I feel it myself some days where, is this an old mindset? Yes. Is this a fixed mindset? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I get out of that? And I think as you evolve in your own career too, you're more conscious of, am I dating myself? Yes. <laughs> you know, in a way. Think about it all the time. Right. Absolutely. But then, and then you realize that actually humans, there's a great a startup that we work with. You know, they have some of the greatest sort of human sentiment analysis um, and analytics and AI capabilities I've ever seen. Amazing. You know, at the end of the day, what their founder, Richard, always reminds me is that, you know, the technology changes, but people don't change that much. And if there's anything we've learned in this pandemic, it's like, yes, our behaviors will change, but our need for connection, our need for experiences, our need for interaction, like that's core to who we are. So I think the more more we get out of this old new thing, I'm violently agreeing. Or technology, no technology, because it's like, it is an enabler. Yes. And it it is an enabler. Speaking of you know, the pandemic and the need for people to connect on a human level. Microsoft Teams, your video conferencing capabilities there were probably game-changing for thousands upon maybe millions of people around the world. When was that technology developed? And as the pandemic was hitting, what were people thinking and how were you thinking about what that product could really do. As someone who has spent a lot of time in retail, I think, you know, you and I both can relate. There are certain products in technology companies and in retail companies where you're like, oh yeah, we sell this, but it's sort of, it's just sort of what we've always sold. It's not the, like for Microsoft, the big bet was Azure and the cloud and, and you know, right? I mean, that was the, one of the big technological shifts 
I don't think any of us expected that Teams was going to be, like, be like the, that the operating system. That was just one of the things, right? It, was, it yeah. was part of it, but it was, I. you know, we all kind of get enamored with the new buzzy stuff. Teams was not that until the pandemic. It was sort of the, the, the boring T-shirt that you have that you sell every summer. You know, I had retailers who said they uh, merchandised their whole line. They did. They always thought they had to fry merchants around the world. No, designers were making product in, you know, literally virtually. By I mean, using- when Walmart, who has always been a work from work company, said we, you know, we're sending employees home. It was a structural shift in the industry unlike anything I've ever seen. And it was... Uh, and I know how privileged I am, but last March and April, as we were sort of wiring up enterprise retail yes, <laughs> to work remote and then sell remote, like it was crazy. Even Microsoft probably wasn't ready for that kind of traffic, volume, usage, the whole thing. The promise of the cloud is that it's it's exponential. Yes. But the reality is data centers are physical things. Yes, they are. They get hot. Like we were running out of air, you know, ways to like cool the data centers. They were running so hot. But what I loved about it was now we're sort of coming out of it and people keep saying, what's the new playbook? And I keep saying, well, it's not that things have changed so much. It's just that everything's gone faster. Everything's going faster. Yes. One retailer we work with who said it was going to take us three years to do like buy online, pick up in store. They did it in eight days. This is a major read. I mean, so I, everybody's just, and so um, your yes, Teams has been sort of the, the operating system for, for collaboration and connectivity. Now, I would say the the flip side that we all have to watch for is the increase, like 55% increase in, in uh, meeting volume between like 9 p.m. and midnight. And no one's allowed to take a break in between. They're back to back. I've never seen anything like it. We need a whole training on how to... We're worried about that. We all should be worried about we, that, I We think. should be. It is that place where technology is enabling 24-7 work, and that can't be good. No. It can't be good. I mean, in my view, that can't be good. And I've always... It's not good. I mean, we're watching what they call the telemetry that's happening um, in Microsoft research. Our brains are getting flooded. I mean, it's not surprising, right? And so what you just said, like taking breaks, you're going to start to see much more tooling to force people to take breaks. Can you say more about that? Because this leads me into another topic that I've wanted to talk to you about, which is the future of work. Absolutely. So on the like, I'd say more tactical tooling, you know, meetings being set up for 15 minutes only to give people that 15 minute break. We have an integration in Teams with the Calm app and you'll start to see a lot more like, kind of wellness. We have another app that gets you up and moving and like you can- Crucial. Yeah. A lot more encouraging like recommendations around, you know, walk and talk versus- Take your walking meetings outside. You don't have to look at the screen all the time. We didn't before, right? Conference calls happened. We joke like, are you working from home or homing from work? But now that we figured out we can do it, we have to start to say, how can technology help? to create, I don't know that balance is ever really there, but at least, you know, better breaks for people. The people doing all the research and the data, the telemetry around like what's happening with our brains and how kind of we're 
also emotionally kind of reacting to this new way of working. Do you believe that, I know many people want to continue to work remotely, and this is, of course, a big conversation everywhere. What is the research and, you know, what kind of data do you have around how it will look, let's say, in the near term and maybe even the longer term? I mean, the vast majority of the Microsoft population and the customers that I talk to want hybrid. Yes. And I think Laura Albers from Williams-Sonoma says it really well, like she sees the office as a tool. Yes. And I think that's right. So probably where we're going to net out uh, is more hybrid uh, you know, continuation of of a more hybrid. Um, you know, a lot of companies are doing this sort of like Monday through Thursday in the office type thing. I don't think we're going back. What do you think? I don't think we're going back, but I do think as people begin to go out for dinner and get together with people, there will be a desire for that human connection yeah. for work. What I think, in a good way, will change is this idea of whatever the schedule is, nine to seven, not, you know, whatever that is, will be very different. And will hopefully people will get together at an office or a place because it'll be more interesting to brainstorm and work together and solve things than it would be by screen. But I do think the future is hybrid. I do too. Even for ourselves, we always worked on the road. We have offices in Europe as as well as as here. So, you know, I kind of lived on a plane. That will change a little bit for me, but I still look forward, you know, to the travel. But I think the connection, the human connection outside of technology will also be important. I actually last week got to go for the first time. I got to leave my house and go to a meeting. We are opening a, um, and actually I'd love to host you there at some point, we're opening a, a Silicon Valley Innovation Center. And so I was- Cannot wait. It's really, a, it's so cool. But, um, you know, we we did the walkthrough. It was mind blowing what they've accomplished. But um, then we had lunch on site, you know, outside and all that. But I sat, I ended up sitting at a table with someone on another team from Microsoft. You know, what I realized after that is, you know, in the last 15 months, I haven't had those sort of chance encounters. Yes. And one topic you and I haven't talked about, but I know we both care a lot about is diversity and inclusion. Yes, I was just going there. You were about to go there. Yes. I think that's what I worry about. Microsoft is doing well. Our numbers are good. A lot of our customers are doing really well. I worry about the long-term effects of like the diversity of ideas and inclusivity because that's hard in this technology. And I think also when we start to think about DNI, not everyone comes from the same culture. Yeah. We might all be speaking English, but culturally it's quite different. I always noticed from the time I opened my company in London. We're both speaking English over there, but I can tell you right now, culturally, how people think about so many things is really different between, let's say, Americans and Brits. And then when you start to think about Americans from all walks of life do bring their culture with them to work. And I think that's almost the 
second most important thing. The most important thing is to bring those diverse people of color, people from diverse cultures from all over the world into our work environments. But even more importantly is to welcome their cultures. I think it's dead on. In my own sort of leadership journey, my team at Gap was largely North American. My team at Salesforce and I sort of picked up Europe. My team now is really global. Yeah, how many people on your team actually? It's actually a very small team. I we call ourselves the stitching. We're we're 60 people. I mean, I had a bigger team at the Gap, but the right. influence, it's a, you know, it's huge. But I have a team in in China, you know, and mm-hmm. a, a team in India. And obviously for retail, a lot of the inspiration of where the future is, is is in those markets. That's exactly right. So it's really important for me not to be so North American. And that realization is critical for every American or, you know, I can only speak for myself, but very grateful that I work in countries all over the world, because how would you know otherwise? That's why I think we kind of have to be there from time to time. We do. And I miss, I mean, that my last big trip, I was in Seattle, my last big trip before lockdown was to China. And thank goodness I got that one in. You sit in a meeting there and you you think I want, I, I'd love a coffee. And like 15 minutes later, they've delivered it. Yes, <laughs> and it's so, so good. It's, yes. a, <laughs> it's yeah. a whole different thing. So ahead of everything. Yeah. And just back to... Um, and maybe stepping into the future of retail, which is what Microsoft is one of the verticals you're in the business of of solving. How do you think about it now? And and specifically, how do you think about what I'm going to buy online, whatever basics, my tide, my whatever, and what I will do in stores? And what are some of the technologies that you think are really important for, you know, that real omni-channel engagement? now? Well, I always start with like a couple simple things. One is that retail is 30% of the world's GDP. And with that... That is not nothing. It's not nothing. I remind myself whenever I'm in the the room with like, you know, my peers from financial services and healthcare. And the data that is the demand signal for the world. The data is the demand signal for the world. That's just so interesting. So tell us about that. Well, and so my first mission in empowering is to remind retailers of that and that they control it. You can't ever control the consumer, but you have, it's easy to say, oh, Amazon has this, Alibaba has that. But so I start there. And then I really think about these kind of four key areas where innovation happens. The first is around knowing your consumer. Mm -hmm. The second is around empowering your employees, especially in retail, Mm -hmm. the frontline employee, because 85% of the workforce is in the frontline. The third scenario is around the intelligence of the supply chain. And the fourth is around reimagining retail. Like that's where like, and so that's where you can reimagine your business. And so I think all all four of those areas are going to see massive acceleration. It's, it's hard to deny the fact that consumers control choices, options are increasing, not decreasing. Retailers who get it right are going to put the intelligence into their front line. Like they're going to trust those store associates and they're going to make them so that they can really help 
consumers um, and have visibility to where the inventory is. I think the supply chain, I mean, we're seeing such big investments in the wiring of the supply chain. And then on on the future, I think we're going to see convergence of industries. The fact that retailers are you know, distributing the vaccine now. You're going to blur your eyes and say, am I in a retail store? Am I in, am I in a, a pediatrician's office? You know, so I think we'll continue to see that convergence and experiences will be part of that. So I still believe in stores. I still believe in store associates. I still believe in great products. And I think technology will innovate with brands along those areas of focus. I'm increasingly seeing, I'm kind of calling it like the coalition of the willing. I'm increasingly seeing different kinds of companies, whether it's sort of the Coca-Cola and the Target or companies wanting to come together to kind of share, to deliver better experiences. And I think technology like data lakes and all those kinds of things will help, but it's really, we're going to see more of that. It's the new collaboration in some ways. And when you think about retail today and the people listening to this conversation who are, you know, presidents, CEOs of companies and really thinking about where to make their investment. And of course, I know it's individual by brand and by company, but they are really saying like, do I invest in empirically connected e-commerce and physical stores? Should I be investing in sizing technology? Should I be investing in augmented reality technologies? Like how do you help them prioritize in using your products or other products, but how to think about those things right now? Ultimately, it really goes back to what's your most important objective. We work a lot with Chipotle. They knew that they had needed better digital experiences and they wanted a loyalty program so that they could understand their consumer better. They had made those investments pre-pandemic. The pandemic hit and they were able to go from, you know, 20% mobile order and pay to 80% really overnight. I think it's sort of picking what's most important to your brand. I mean, if you're Kroger, another company that we work with, your supply chain, right? I mean, that is like the lifeblood. So I I do go back to what's the most important thing for your company. And that's where I usually, I sort of take those four scenarios I walked you through and say, which one is, which is most important right now? There's pull through, but I think you do have to pick um, whether it's sort of that consumer side and experiential side or the efficiency and operational side. And of course, they're cousins, but one needs to take the lead for the other. So interesting. And you must be asked these questions all the time. I mean, this must be constant for you and in some ways like a big burden of responsibility as well. I guess it goes back to that kind of learn it all uh, mentality. I try to restrain myself from having coming up with quick answers, but to, to be a student the difference is always like the people, right? <laughs> and how always, how, of course. Always, and how how curious are they? How much do they want go on to go on the journey? You know, even once you sort of pick your bets, I've learned eight hundred things will go wrong. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, exactly. It's terrifying. I was on the phone with a retailer this morning, and they picked the right strategy. 
It's a grocer. None of their Instacart orders were going through because of a problem, frankly, on our side, on the Microsoft side. But because this executive and I have built a relationship over these years, he was frustrated and he's got, he's in the hot seat, but he was like, I know you're going to fix this. And I know you're going to bring the best of Microsoft to fix it. That's, that's very cool. It's more about like, are you on the journey together? And that's why these relationships are so important. Like you're not just in and out. No. Someone's not just saying, oh, let's, uh, let's get teams. I mean, it really, it doesn't work like that. Like you are in there for a long period of time, I would imagine, really helping change management take place as well inside companies, I would think. That's right. And that's, you're getting me better to the point, which is as your, our audience now is listening, obviously, you know, have your engineers kick the tires on the tech, have your strategists make sure you're clear about your goals and objectives with the technology you're buying. But I think as important, if not more, is make sure that you have a partner on the other side who is going to be in there, be in there for like when the systems go down, when things don't work, that's going to see your business success as their own success. Because from my days at The Gap, where it was a transactional relationship, the talk I give the most now is about what partnership looks like in this new era. Like we run a cloud factory for Walmart in Austin, Texas. It's Microsoft engineers sitting next to Walmart engineers, not during COVID, but like they're literally wiring, you know, together and looking like project by project, workload by workload. How do we train Pass, train, pass. And frankly, we're learning more about our technology too and what customers need. So I really encourage everybody here to really think about the partner. Probably right now, our industry, along with others that are so consumer facing, need these partnerships and need to really be able to help their teams and organizations also become more comfortable with technology and really understand how it does empower them and to help them be less afraid of those things. And we get involved with, through Fashion Tech Forum, many of these conversations. What do you think is the unlock in helping the thousands and thousands of people employed by companies around the world to gaining a greater comfort with just what we might call digital Mm. not even technology, but operating in a digital context, not just on the site and shopping side, but just to feel more comfortable in that space and how they do their work. I don't know what you're seeing. My experience is the comfort with technology is largely there in sort of the in the fashion companies too, in the rank and file. Because we're all, we're all, you know, we're living, they're on Instagram or whatever. We're living in a digital world. Honestly, I think why people like you and people like me and people like this podcast are so important is it's often senior management. <laughs> Not that they're, you know, but it's like- so that- true though. <laughs> it's so true. Such a good point. Thank you. Because of course it's not the- people coming up in the organization, they're already there. Watch your children, watch their friends, watch, you know, like go to an airport, look at what people are doing. So um, I think it's getting kind of management teams comfortable 
like back to sort of the teams in frontline, we had a retailer, a major fashion retailer that we work with. We were working on a clienteling application. And um, they were very, very concerned about, you know, pushing, you know, Karen's purchasing behavior to a store worker, right? Understandably, like, you know, there's all sorts that, of- that, that line crossing is- Privacy, questions, whatever. So- which is, you know, I guess back to the other point, you do need to make sure you have a partner that has the highest standards around trust and security and all that. So that's almost a given. But once you sort of cross that threshold, I mean, ultimately, this is your employee. They're with your customer. Yes. And if they can help Karen have a better shopping experience because they know what she's browsed, they know what she's interested in, they know when, you know, somebody in her family's birthday might be, she's going to be a better employee for the long haul. And once, you know, what this particular customer saw, like retention rates, net promoter for the employee, net promoter scores increase, like actually in the stores, the bad actors got weeded out by other store employees faster than it ever got up to corporate. So I think it is, it is about... Um, watching life, trusting your people, and um, moving forward. I was speaking yesterday to the CEO of a company that I work with, and we were talking about something very different. But he said, yeah, it's very clear that women are going to rule the world. And I was like, yeah, I, I like the sound of that. But I mean, really, how do you how do you think about yourself as a woman who definitely has great influence um, as a leader and what will it look like, um, you know, down the road? Oh, this is such a good one, you know, and I'd be remiss not to just say like as a sister, as a daughter, um, as a mom. Yep. I feel heartbroken about the number of women that have lost their jobs. I mean, it's, I mean, I can't remember the number, but it is astronomical. It's like 400,000. Yeah, yes. it's, it's I, I could be wrong, but it's, I had a pit in my, I, you know, I just thought, ugh, it just made me sad. It made me mad. It reminded me what privilege I have and what an obligation I have. I also think on a more optimistic note, this is our time. Yes. I had a great conversation. I think you know Jill Standish, who runs yes, the of course. Vertical at yes. Accenture. She's like a, a friend, a mentor. We were talking about how good we're feeling about leading right now because people are gravitating to authentic leadership, to collaborative leadership, which I think in some ways, I know sort of my role in a tech company when I get sort of my annual review, one of the things that they look at me and they say is, you're good at pulling teams together. You're a collaborator. And I think those are things. That's what we do. That's what that we is do. what we do. We get yes. in the room, we say, what do you want? What do you want? Okay, what do we all want? How are we going to get there? And we, we, and we actually are interested. Yeah, and we are. And like, and then everybody's ready to take the hill. I think this is a good time for us. I, I want to like empower us to lead and to take it and to not wait to, to be picked. Be asked, yes. Yes, yeah. I, I think it's a really pivotal time for women to lead this charge. And I think each of us has a role to play in sponsoring women who are coming up in the ranks. So I try to do as much of that as I possibly can. I think the world will be a better place. I mean, I remember I uh, Keith Block, who was the, the chairman at Salesforce when I was there, uh, just a fantastic leader. And he came and spoke to us one day and he said, you know, 
I'm not doing this because like, I'm not sponsoring the women of Salesforce because I'm trying to like look good with people. He's like, he said, I have four sons and one daughter. And let me tell you who rules the house. I love it. (laughs) He's like, I know. I I remember being on a plane and watching Warren Buffett's biopic a couple of years ago, three, four years ago. And at one point he says, the reason I'm still optimistic about American business and business in the world is that 50% of our workforce isn't even really in the game yet. Wow. So, you know, it really moved me. I thought he's right. Yeah, he really is. I mean, this has been incredible. I mean, Shelly, I I think doing what you're doing and how you're doing it and how you're showing up, you've only scratched the surface of how you'll be making a tremendous impact. So I really genuinely mean that. And I'm so thrilled that we've been able to reconnect. It is a thousand percent mutual. I think what you're doing and really bridging the gap between fashion and technology is so important for both industries. So I'm grateful for the role, uh, the spiritual leader that you're playing um, for all of us. Well, I mean, I have so much to learn. It's really, you know, I am the learn it all, right? Like that is, you know, I'll, I'll take that with me, by the way. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed our program. You can subscribe to Fashion Tech Forum in the Studio wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Fashion Tech Forum in the Studio is a production of FTF and Charts and Leisure, co-produced by my amazing co-founder of FTF and Index, Maya Wojcik, and Megal Janardin of Charts and Leisure. The program is executive produced by Jason Oberholzer and me, and our theme music was written and performed by the wonderful Michael Simonelli. Thank you again for joining Fashion Tech Forum in the studio, and I look forward to seeing you soon.